I'm Lee Rowland, and from the ACLU, this is At Liberty, the weekly podcast where we discuss major issues in civil rights and civil liberties. Today, I'll be talking with Patrice Cullors, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Patrice is an artist, a community organizer, a Fulbright scholar, and an author. We're going to learn about her political activism and the origins and future of Black Lives Matter, a movement that was founded exactly five years ago on July 13, 2013, after George Zimmerman was acquitted in the killing of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. Patrice, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So you have co-founded this incredible movement that has changed the nature of racial justice advocacy here in the United States, how we talk about race. You are a Fulbright scholar. You're an artist, an activist. What made you choose this life? It chose me. (laughs) It chose me. I think I grew up in conditions that were deeply traumatic and unfortunate and also incredibly planned. And I grew up in an environment that was more invested in divesting from my family and my community. And I grew up going to mostly white schools where I got to see how they were treated where I got to see, you know, young people being given things that I was, I never received. And so I lived in sort of these two worlds and it became very clear to me that the way that I was living, what I was going back home to was unacceptable. And I had a fire in my belly to want to do something about it. And I was really fortunate to go to a a social justice high school where I sort of got the language and the understanding of, oh, this could be my life. I I can fight for change. So Patrice, can you tell us where were these two worlds uh, that you straddled? And what do you mean when you say this was a planned world? (laughs) I grew up in Van Nuys, uh, which is a suburb outside of the inner city of Los Angeles. It's still Los Angeles City. It's just a working class suburb. And adjacent to Van Nuys is Sherman Oaks, which is mostly white, affluent neighborhood. So I grew up in Van Nuys, but I was schooled early on in Sherman Oaks and just witnessed, you know, heavy policing in my neighborhood. And then I would literally cross over to Chandler Boulevard on the other side and little to no policing in that neighborhood. And what I mean by plant is I mean that what I would learn as a teenager in my late teens that actually there's this thing called racism and sexism and capitalism and homophobia and transphobia and ableism and that these isms were a part of the fabric of America. They're a part of how institutions in America like schools and churches like government agencies were able to have a class of people who had lots of privilege and classes of people who didn't. And what I realized is that this wasn't my fault or my mother's fault. It was actually, we were born into poverty because poverty exists in America, even though it doesn't have to. How did you choose to act out on that and to talk about this discovery with people in your community? 
Um, I was incredibly defiant as a child. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the best kind of children. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I was really like a joyous and loving kid, but I was also incredibly defiant. And I just knew what I wanted and I knew what was, you know, I was one of those kids that like if an adult said something that I agreed with, I was like, okay, I'll do that. But if they didn't, I was very... Uh, loud about it, and um, it obviously didn't bode well in my household. But I think it it did for my schooling. I was a voracious reader. I was very interested in learning. I wasn't necessarily interested in institutions, but I was that kid that like read everything that a teacher would give me, but didn't do my homework because I was like, who cares about homework? So like that was kind of like how I was. So you were already destroying hierarchical structures (laughs) by age eight? Okay. Who were some of your favorite authors when you were a kid? Bell Hooks. I I got my hands on Bell Hooks at 16. Thank the Lord. Audre Lorde became a really big author for me. I, I read everything, all of Audre's her essays, her novels. Toni Morrison became really big for me. And this was all taught in school, mind you. So, And this was I'm in le- a, what you described as a white high school too, right? This was a social justice high school that was a magnet program. And the residential program was actually mostly of color, mm. but the magnet program inside the residential school was about 76% white. And we probably had like in a classroom of 30 anywhere, you know, incoming class uh, was probably like three to four black students. And by the time we graduated, it was very rare, to be honest with you, that most of those black students would graduate from the program. So, you know, I think for me, learning and reading the literature that I was given and then living the life I was living And then feeling like I have all this language, I know what racism is, I know what capitalism is, I'm living this life, what do I do with it? I think that was the next phase for me, and I was hungry for activism. I didn't know that that's what it was called then, but I was hungry for organizing. And I I joined, um, I went to a social justice camp called NCCJ, the National Conference for Community and Justice. I went through their uh, youth leadership program and became a youth leader, but it still wasn't enough for me. I was like, cool, like I'm learning more, but how do I take down local government? Like, How do I like transform systems? How do I create new pathways? And that's when I came across the Labor Community Strategy Center and the Bus Riders Union, uh, which is a local civil rights organization ran by an old school organizer activist from the 60s, 70s, Eric Mann. And I was organized into the Bus Riders Union, and I spent 11 years there where I really learned my organizing, was trained as an organizer, a base builder, someone that transformed systems. I mean, really, that organization gave me my foundation. And then I went off to start Dignity Empower Now, my local organization that took on the sheriff's department. And then a year later, I would start be one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Can you tell us about your time at the Bus Riders Union? Yes, the Bus Riders Union was the first organization to work with bus riders and to fight really for a first-class transit system inside of Los Angeles County. What the Bus Riders Union realized is that bus riders 
were being completely segregated from the rest of the city from car drivers. Um, that bus riders in LA were unable to hop on a bus effectively or efficiently to get to work. Um, that was impacting people's ability to be mobile, not just like physically, but also like in relationship to them being able to get to a job. And that there was a system that was in place here in LA County that was privileging the building of trains, a train system that was largely built and created for mostly white riders. And they were able to file class action lawsuit against the Metro, um, the Metropolitan Transit Agency, which it was called then MTA, and won. And we won a class action lawsuit where wow. it was huge. Uh, I wasn't around when they won the actual lawsuit, but I came into the lawsuit was the class action consent decree was still alive and well. And so I came into that and I came into this organization that had made history, this tiny org that sued a $3 billion agency and won. And that agency had a deal with this organization and this organization represented a half a million bus riders in Los Angeles. And I was a bus rider and my family were bus riders. So I joined understanding really clearly that this organization was a civil rights organization fighting for racial justice. Um, and I was on the front lines of fighting for Black, Latino, and Korean writers and working class people inside of LA. And we talked explicitly about race and explicitly about anti-Black racism. And a lot of ways, it's where I got my training around understanding impacts of Black anti-Black racism. So I knew wherever I went um, that we were going to talk about race and racism and class and classism. So, Patrice, take us now to the founding of Black Lives Matter. How was that the natural progression from what you'd seen and advocated for in the past? And particularly, I'd love to know why a new model, why a new mode, a new organization, a, a new type of advocacy? Why did you feel like that was necessary? Well, I think every generation of young people is trying to evolve what we or what they understand the last generation did. I wasn't necessarily sitting around a room being like, what's the next movement? You know, what are we going to do next? I was doing the work every day. I was being an organizer. I was hearing the stories. I was witnessing them myself. I was living them myself. I was dealing with over-incarceration. I was dealing with over-policing, police violence, police abuse, corruption. You know, I live in LA County where the sheriff has been convicted of of corruption, where the undersheriff is now sitting in federal prison. So this is not new. You know, I live in the city where Rodney King was brutalized. I live in the city where there was an LAPD rampart scandal. So the idea of like police being the good guys was like never a part of our vernacular. I mean, we are literally the generation that witnessed the police become militarized. We're the generation that um, witnessed our families, our parents unable to get work. And um, we're the forgotten generation. And so only time tells um, when a community pushes back, when a community snaps, when a community says enough is enough. And that's what BLM is. It's not a rational place. It's BLM comes from intergenerational trauma and intergenerational resilience. It's just tapping into what we've been doing for the last 500 years until this place changes forever. And I think that's 
important to note, right, that BLM isn't a thing that sort of starts off in a nonprofit structure. It's something that starts off in the bodies of human beings who've been pushed up against a wall, who've been torn from their families, who've witnessed some of the most destructive things and received no justice. It's a generation that's really rising up together. It's why Black Lives Matter, the moment it was spoken out of Alicia's mouth, it's why it became clear to me that it needed to be a hashtag. It's why Opal showed up and said, let's do this together. And it's why I believe the rest of the world was like, yes, this is what we need to be saying. I think we're in a moment where Black Lives Matter has debunked the police being the ones who are telling the truth all the time. I think there was a moment in history, even though Black communities understood and poor communities understood what police were doing to us, that nobody else did. Nobody believed us. Now that I have the privilege of making a decision on where I live, I ask, the first thing I ask, you know, whenever I move somewhere, I go to the community during the day and I go to the community at night. (laughs) I want to know if there's going to be police circling the block. I want to know if there's going to be helicopters circling the block. Because it's not any way to live. It's traumatic. It's dehumanizing. It's frightening. So you've just you've explained the growth of BLM as something I'm putting words in your mouth now. I hope it's not too wrong, but as a primal cry, right? As something existential that is a response to this intolerable life. Can you explain to folks who may not understand how that has manifested in the structure of Black Lives Matter. Why is it different than, say, the NAACP that you can give a tax-deductible donation to? Or why is it different from a group like the ACLU? How is your vision of how Black Lives Matter is structured and does its activism? Well, it's decentralized. And so while we have a global network, Black Lives Matter, we're decentralized. People are doing their work in their communities not based off of one single mandate of a national organization. And it's autonomous. Uh, People get to decide what they do in their organizations for Black people. But it's not without guidance, meaning Black Lives Matter has a set of guiding principles. It also has a clear politic. Um, We are trying to transform the way Black people are treated, not just in this country, but around the globe. And more importantly, we're trying to transform the systems in which Black people continue to be targeted for demise. So for us, you know, the most obvious systems we're trying to change, and many of us would say abolish, is the criminal justice system, the courts, the police, the jails, the prisons, detention centers. We live in a country that has used bondage for over 500 years as a form of labor, as a form of punishment, as a form of control. And so the work that we're trying to do is imagine a different world, not just for Black people, but imagine what our world would look like if we didn't keep a community in bondage. What would we be? What would we center ourselves around? And so that is philosophical. But it's really important for us, especially when it comes to our practice. Do you consider yourself an anarchist? No, 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 no. I don't consider myself an anarchist, although there are anarchists within BLM. I I don't have a label. I consider myself someone who's fighting for the freedom uh, for Black people. 
but I do consider myself an abolitionist, a proud one, and the legacy of Harriet Tubman um, and the legacy of Angela Davis. Um, I think that at this point, if we haven't convinced people that abolition is the way forward, then we got to work harder. We can't live in a system like this. And I think I'll answer the question before it gets asked, well, what do we do then about <laughs> harm and violence? Um there's many things we do. Um, there's many things we can do. There's many things that other countries do right now. Living in this environment, this is not a made-up thing. Uh, there are countries that don't use the death penalty, countries that don't use imprisonment, countries who are actually looking at caring for their populations who suffer from drug addiction or mental illness, caring for their populations who are poor. We have to do something about how we care or don't care for those that are most marginalized in our communities. Because if we open up the jail cells, if you go to any jail throughout the country, any prison, ask who's in there, a majority of those people will be in there for drug charges. Majority of those people will be in there because they suffer from mental illness. We have to take a moment to really look at, are we serving the entirety of the people who reside in this country, or are we punishing them for things that are out of their control? Right. So you're speaking in part of a Black Lives Matter that emerged, you know, years ago when we had a different administration, right? We had President Obama in place, and you're saying it emerged in response to unjust systems. How has that and and with the full recognition that that we're talking about a decentralized movement how has the black lives matter movement and coalition changed um with the election of president trump um i think all of us understand that we were going to be on the front lines fighting whether it was 45 or hillary clinton and yet we completely understand that living under 45's government is incredibly destructive and that at this point in history, his administration is single-handedly eroding the American Constitution. So much of our work is still doing the work that we've been doing around ending law enforcement violence and challenging it. But we've also been really looking at these midterm elections, both at the candidates who are running, but also at legislation that we can push forward. And we are uh, meeting and talking with experts in the field around electoral politics, not because we think electoral politics are going to save the day, but rather we know that we have to understand all the different ways that this American machine works so that we can be a part of challenging it and changing it. Can you give a specific example of a Black Lives Matter-led campaign that you would measure as successful, either changing results or changing the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think about here in Los Angeles, where our Black Lives Matter chapter has been taking on LAPD and also taking on DA Jackie Lacey. I'm thinking about the work that our local chapter has done to amplify police killings here in LA alone and has been able to challenge the LAPD commission that on paper is actually a really strong commission, but sides with law enforcement often. 
and has um, lifted up Black people's names in a way that this city has uh, never done. I think about Chicago, who our chapter at Chicago has um, is on the brink of uh, of really shaping a new way of relating to how to fight elected officials. I mean, Chicago is such a brilliant place for organizing. I think about our D.C. chapter who has effectively sued the Metro Police in D.C. We started out with a movement that you described as very organic and kind of reactive in a way that was, you know, part of your lives and a product of our communities. Now you're talking about ballot initiatives and particular legislation. Is BLM becoming more mainstream, do you think, as an advocacy organization? Mm. I think that BLM is becoming more strategic. I would not say mainstream. I think being on the streets over the last three years was strategic. Um, we couldn't sit and have conversations with law enforcement, try to have conversations with elected officials, because we knew that if we sat at the table too early, that they would try to co-opt us. So shutting it down, showing up in the streets, that was absolutely necessary and strategic. And we can look at this for any movement or uprising. It starts in the streets, but you you don't stay in the streets. It's not necessary. <laughs> right. Um, you move in the ways that are strategic. So we actually have to have all of it. We have to be in the streets. We have to be working with elected officials. We have to be moving ballot initiatives. We have to be fighting for the uh, elected officials that we want to see in office. Um, it's not one or the other. I think this country sometimes lives in a dichotomy. It's like, okay, well, BLM is no longer in the streets, so now it's doing this. No, right. BLM is doing all of it. And we could see that with if you look at any good movement around the country. I've done a lot of study and research on the Korean workers' movement. The entire country will shut down when the workers are like, no, we're not doing this. And they will be in the streets for weeks until they go into negotiations and they get what they want. And then we'll probably be back in the streets again because that's how it works when you live in a democracy. Right. So I'd like to ask you about a perhaps, no, definitely more dubious mark of a successful racial justice movement, which appears to be the almost definite likelihood that that movement will be surveilled and infiltrated by the FBI. You know, in my work at the ACLU, I know we ran into the FBI's creation of a new term for racial justice activists, which they are labeling as Black identity extremists. Have you yourself, as an activist, become aware of surveillance in any personal way? And how has the reality of being surveilled by your own government how has it affected your advocacy and relationships among people in the movement? I know many of us have been surveilled, are being surveilled. I think it's hard to fully comprehend that you're being watched while you're being watched. Yeah. Obviously, I read about surveillance, you know, COINTELPRO. We all kind of sit, you know, joke or sometimes they're a little bit too flippant with the use of someone's an agent or we're being watched. But you know, I think part of what happens is uh, if you think too much about it, you probably won't continue doing the work. <laughs> so hmm. I, I'm i mindful of what I say over my machines. We all try to use as much private and safe, secure apps and emails as possible. But at the end of the day, 
you know, technology is technology and they always have more technology than us. The fight against surveilling our communities has been a, a fight for a very long time. You mentioned earlier in our talk that you released a memoir this year and you chose to title that book When They Call You a Terrorist. Why did you use that word terrorism? Because that's what we were called. We were called terrorists. And not only were we called terrorists by right-wing pundits, we were called terrorists by former elected officials, current elected officials, appointed officials. I mean, that language was wielded against us and upon us. And when I say us, I mean Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter activists. Um, We were sued. They didn't win, but we were sued. And it became really clear that the police and law enforcement was going to try to use many of the killings of police officers like in Dallas and New York against our movement and blame us. At the beginning of the interview, you described yourself as joyous and loving. It feels to me like there is a sense of optimism that suffuses so much of what you do. And I'm really interested in how you how you process such a a magnitude of tragedy every day. How do you do that every day and still remain a joyous person? (laughs) I have good friends. I have good community. My family's amazing. Uh, My child's brilliant. I have an amazing husband and partner, and uh, my mother is incredible. Um, I get to see and be with families who've been through the worst and are still showing up and present. And so part of that for me is how and why I feel like I'm not going to let them steal my joy. What's next for you and where do you see Black Lives Matter headed next? Well, I'm doing an MFA program, getting my master's in fine arts in the middle of it all. I know you've done some performance art. Are you still Yeah, doing I'm that? a performance artist and I do installation. And so really looking at the the history of the Black arts movement and how it's shaped the Black power movement, I'm, I'm really interested in, in the artists in our movement. I think we really shape history and shape futures. And Black Lives Matter is developing itself. It's in such an amazing moment where we get to shape our work and shape our support. Black Lives Matter is on the front lines of of changing this country and will continue to do so. We have our five-year anniversary, July 13th. Wow. I know, five years. And so we're going to continue to show up for Black lives here in this country, around the world. And I think we're excited to be a part of this midterm elections and and this moment and continue to do the work that we're doing to change the way law enforcement is in relationship to us. Patrice, just tell folks if they want to learn more about either your book or your work, where can they find more information about you online? You can find me at patricecolors.com and that's like my whole world there. You can go to blacklivesmatter.com to learn more about Black Lives Matter and book is probably in your local bookstore online. And some local libraries have it. And if they don't, tell them to get it. And that book, again, for people who didn't get it, is When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice mm-hmm. Colors. Thank you again, Patrice, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. 
From the ACLU, this has been At Liberty. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts.